Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. I'm Darcy. And I'm Kyle. And we are recording the last of our little mini-series with API. Who do we have now? Today, we have David Miller, the Senior Director of Standards at API. And we're going to be talking a little bit with him today about the Q2 uh standard for uh, quality management for services. Uh, there was a recent update to the standard, so we'll learn a little bit more about what's going on with it. All right. In today's global economy, quality matters. Benjamin Franklin once quipped, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. Quality Matters is here to talk about all things quality, so whether you're looking to improve your business, getting ready for an audit, or dealing with failed inspections, tune in, check us out, then get back to doing work that matters. So David, first tell us, you know, obviously the general question, a little bit about um, about you and what your role is with API. And I understand that you have uh, been involved in API for quite some time now. Yes, I have. Uh, I've been at API for quite some time. That's that's a nice and polite way of putting it. Um, so I got <laughs> over I got over thirty five years invested wow. in the organization, and uh, it's that's been awesome. a great yeah. It's been a great uh, a great ride, as they say. It's uh, it's a great industry to represent. Uh, lots of really smart and talented and motivated people here at the organization. But of course, the the, the big part about what really keeps me and the rest of my team coming back every day is the opportunity to work with the subject matter experts that staff our committees because we've got over 9,000 individuals from over 2,200 different organizations that sit on our committees and they really are, you know, the industry leading experts in all these fields. And so uh, surround yourself by really smart people, as you know, and by osmosis, you get a bit smarter at the end of the day. So uh, I'm just a little bit smarter at the end of each day working with these committee members, but um, not, not nearly up to where they are. But yeah, no, really, that's uh, that's a big driver for a lot of the folks that work in my team. It's just working with all those true world-class experts. I bet. I, I, I bet. You know, I, I always say that the favorite part of my job in doing the uh, consultation work is just simply seeing the mass variety of ways that folks choose to solve problems. And, you know, I can only imagine, you know, what this like operating with some of the, uh, the scale of folks you all deal with. So that, that's, that's fantastic. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about um, Q2. So there were some recent changes to it, maybe give a, a little bit of a brief history of what the Q2 standard is and, and who it's for and, you know, the changes that were made to it. Absolutely. So, so Q2 is our, is our quality management system requirements for service and supply organizations uh, for the petroleum and natural gas industries. And, and API have had a Q1, which is our, our quality management systems requirements for manufacturers for quite some time. In fact, that standard was first published, I think, in the mid-80s, when API kind of moved from, you know, what had been sort of a self-assessment program to sort of a certification and assessment and and on-site audit program. And so that had been uh, been around for quite quite a few number of years for our monogram program, and I understand you've you've also spoken with some of the other folks at API, so you probably have a good grounding in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But coming out of Coming out of that work a number of years later, we really looked at the service and supply community and recognizing that, you know, when you think about, you know, petroleum and natural gas as an industry, 
you know, of course you have your, your big super majors, your international oil companies, your national oil companies, you have all those big organizations that you think of, you know, the Exxon Mobiles and Shells and BPs of the world, the Chevrons and the rest. But the work that really gets done day in, day out, in large part, is done by the contractors. And you probably know that in your work as well, right? So you have your service contractors, you have some big organizations, you know, the Halliburton's, uh, former Jay's Baker Hughes of the world, and you have a lot of smaller organizations that are niche organizations that just work in certain areas. And really there was a recognition by our subcommittee 18 on quality management systems that it's great that we have this uh, standard and program for the manufacturers, but what are we doing for the service and supply folks? What are we doing for the folks that come out and do the well um, work, you know, that work in the field, that work at our, you know, facilities? And so there was a recognition that we needed a standard in that area, and that's really what brought about, you know, the Q2 standard, as we call it, quality Q standard, Q2, which is really that quality management system requirements and service and supply organization. So that was sort of the genesis of that first edition of, of uh, Q2, and it's been out there for, for some time. And uh, as an ANSI, or American National Standards Institute, accredited standards organization, we have a requirement that all of our standards be revised, reaffirmed, or withdrawn every five years. And so uh, this standard had gone through at least one cycle where it had been reaffirmed, which is really the industry subject matter experts, I mentioned them earlier, reviewing the standard and saying, right, you know, it's, it's good the way it is. We don't need to make any changes. We're going to reaffirm it for, you know, up to another five-year cycle. Uh, but then on this next uh, this next time we, we looked at the standard and said, well, you know, there are some changes that we can make to QC to make it better. Uh, we're all about continuous improvement. Uh, I know that you probably see a lot of that in your work as well. We can oh, yeah. always get better. Uh, and so really that was the genesis of, of putting a plan together to update this uh, edition from edition one to edition two, which has just been recently been published. So what were some of the uh, the points that you found were worth improving? You know, what were some of the, uh, the arguments that uh, y'all had for and against that? Well, I think that, you know, the main thing we wanted to do was to really kind of update the standard and, and make some significant improvements that would bring more safety and sustainability to the work we do, because that, that's very important for, you know, all of industry is to really have a, a strong safety and sustainability aspect to the work you do, because as I like to say, you know, you may have a, you may have a, you know, a legal license to operate, but you may not have the social license to operate if you're not taking care of your business in the right way, right? So some of the changes that we made to the standards specifically to talk about, you know, areas where we could have improvements is we, for example, added additional requirements uh, in Section 432 on human re resources. So we had some additional requirements in there for things with regards to training and really making sure that the people that you send out to the well site that you send out to the facility that are doing you know, those contractor work for you that they really have, you know, the required skills and training that they need to to operate safely and sustainably. Uh, another big issue right now, and, and this, um, I'd, I'd like to say that we were very prescient in putting this together, but, you know, it's one of those things where, again, going back to the SMEs being so much smarter than I'm, I am, they said, you know what, well, we need to be thinking about supply chain. You know, that is a huge issue. Yep. People are are getting product and, and services from around the world. You used to just, you know, call the organization down the street. Now you may be calling somebody around halfway around the world. And so we added a requirement in our purchasing control with regards to supply chains. We wanted to make sure that the service and supply manufacturers, you know, were taking care of that side of the business as well. And then finally, 
you know, for one of the big changes is we wanted to have an alignment uh, for control of testing, measuring, monitoring, and detection equipment, TMMDE, so TMMDE, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, we wanted to make sure that that aligned with, with, with the Q1 section, so that's section 5.8 in Q2. And the thought there is, and we also made uh, Q1 verbiage align, alignage where we could, is that you know, many of our you know, manufacturing and service and supply organizations hold both Q1 and Q2 licenses because yep. you may have an organization that manufactures the equipment, but then also has a service and supply part of their business that goes out and, you know, installs the equipment, maintains it, whatever they might be doing for you. And so the thought was, well, if an organization has both a Q1 and a Q2 license, where can we make alignment to make sure that, you know, we are getting you know, the best safety and sustainability out of the effort. How do we make sure that all these pieces fit together? And so we made those changes where, where we could throughout the, throughout the standard, and in particular, as I mentioned in uh, testing, measuring, monitoring, detection equipment, we made sure that that text aligns with Q1. So to try to knit those two parts of, uh, parts of the equation together. Yep, yep. You know, that's always... Uh one of the more difficult parts, not so much now as it used to be, but, you know, matching requirements between standards can sometimes be uh, you know, quite a, a difficult, uh, difficult ordeal to manage. Um, and we're actually working on a project right now for Q2. And as we're going through the new version of the standards, one of the same things I noticed is, oh, wow, this is all, this is lining up much better than, uh, than it did before. Well, <laughs> so that, been... that is really good. That's really good news to, to hear, Kyle, because that, that's our goal. That was our goal in, <laughs> in this revision was to make sure that where we could, you know, we, we got that alignment better so that there was, uh, you know, a, a greater, a, you know, more cohesive approach, especially for those organizations that hold both Q1 and Q2 licenses. Yep, yep. So how uh, how long did it take to go through some of these revisions to the Q2 standard? Um, you know, what what's that process look like for you guys? Yeah, that's a great question. We often get asked the, the question of, well, how long does it take to write a standard? How, how long does it take to develop a standard? Which is which is a very fair question. Uh, I, I'd like to say, you know, that the standards process is, uh, you know, it's very linear. You know, that we have a project or proposal, it goes to the subcommittee for review, you put a group together, you validate, you publish it. Uh, there's always kind of ups and downs in that. Yep. Uh, but in this case, uh, I believe that the work from start to finish was somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 or so months. Okay. which uh, our, our normal cycle time is somewhere in the neighborhood of 24 to 36 months. It really depends on how major the revision is. Um, one of the things that we find is that when we do first editions, they can take a bit longer. Because the first yeah. time you're sort of writing something down, as we say, on paper, and then looking at it, uh, there can be a little longer time. But this one was somewhere in that range. Um, so that's from when the project's approved, uh, first it gets approved at a task group level, you know, then the parent subcommittee and main committee approve it because, you know, we are committing industry resources, you know, these subject matter experts that are volunteering from the member companies and non-member companies alike that work on our committees. You know, you're, you're asking them for a pretty big, you know, contribution of their time. You're asking yep. for the leadership's time. You're asking for a lot of commitments there. So we don't, we don't do any of these revisions lightly. We want to make sure that there's a true industry need to, um, to dedicate those resources. So, you know, once the project is approved and then it goes into, you know, the consensus building, you know, cycle, the pre-ballot, as we call it on our website, um, that's usually the longest period of time. And I think in this case, it was a little over a year where you have sort of that give and take between, well, here are things we could change, here are things that people think we might want to change. 
And then finally, that leads up to that formal ballot process. And then once that ballot is concluded and uh, for API, that's a six-week ballot. And uh, part of, again, going back to the American National Standards Institute and our ANSI accreditation and and uh, in transparency, I'll let you know that I'm on the ANSI board of directors and I chair a couple of their committees. So I want that to gotcha. I want that to make sure that that's understood. Um, uh, anyway, our our ballots are open on our website, so anyone, whether they're a member of the committee, a member of the public, a government representative, anyone around the world can go to our website, see what standards are open for ballot, review the documents, and provide their comments. And part of our ANSI accreditation requires us to provide response back to all of those organizations or individuals that comment them, letting them know how did we treat your comment? Did we change the standard? Did we? Oh, wow. Yeah, did we scorecard that change for maybe a future revision because it was a bit out of scope? Or did we simply say, yeah, we considered that and we're not going to make a change, but here's the next steps in the due process. So hmm. we take a lot of pride in a very rigorous process, which is really why these standards are the most widely cited standards around the world by the regulatory community, because they yep. know what level of effort we put into them. Uh, but back to your question. So after that six-week ballot, we then go into comment resolution, the process I just described. Once all the comments are addressed to everyone's satisfaction, we then move to the editorial, legal review, and then finally the publication process. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, let me, uh, as this, you, you've mentioned, you know, uh, from working in the well, field work, facility type work, you know, what, um, I, well, let me back up my own question a little bit. So I have folks ask a lot of times, well, you know, with Q1 or if we're looking at ISO for 9001, they're like, well, you know, that doesn't work for everyone. I'm like, okay, no, it doesn't quite work for everyone. So we'll have a conversation about who these standards are best for. You know, within the oil and gas uh, world, are there any service providers that uh, this is specifically designed for, or is it meant to be kind of a generic uh, to fit all? It's, it's a very broad standard. In fact, when we wrote the first edition, we talked about uh, the fact that while it was designed primarily for the upstream work, that it was written in such a way that the in, you know the other individual segment committees could write sort of annexes to it if they felt that it was important to say have a midstream annex hmm. or a downstream annex. Uh, but specifically, when it was written, it, it covers, of course, construction, uh, drilling, uh, well intervention. Uh, field production activities, uh, well closure and remediation, which is, as you know, in the news right now. Mm -hmm. And I'll put a quick plug in for another API standard we published this year, 65.3, on on, uh, on uh, well abandonment and closure. Because, again, talking about safety and sustainability, you know, if you properly close in those temporary or permanently abandoned wells, you have a greater safety, you reduce the emissions, yep. which is important. There's lots of really important things you need to do and that's uh, I understand you know part of what they're talking about with um, some of the uh, some of the recent government actions with regards to infrastructure but then also repair and maintenance so it really covers pretty much a very broad part of what goes on you know drilling completing work over and finally closure of a of a uh, well site gotcha now you mentioned uh you know, the opportunity for folks to, to put comments uh, publicly on the website. And there's, you know, no shortage of areas that these uh, can run into, uh, folks using these standards can run into legal requirements. You know, how much input do y'all get from uh, legislators and lawmakers? And how much feedback goes on there to make sure that this is, is helping to continue to advance the industry in a, uh, in a good direction? 
Yeah, so again, they're, they're open committees. Uh, we have a requirement as far as our, our ANSI um, accreditation goes that we try to have a, a balance on our committee. We'd like to have one-third of the folks working on the standards being from uh, sort of the owner-operator, typically the oil companies, pipeline companies, refiners, depending on the standard. Um, one-third would be from service and supply or manufacturers, depending again on the standard. And then the final one-third that we like to have is called general interest, and that includes your government officials, uh, your consulting engineers, um, state officials will participate in the process, um, some NGOs participate in the process, you know, some of our standards that are not as highly technical, some of our standards that we've developed recently having to do with things like community engagement practices, where we have a standard that is specifically for community engagement when you're moving into an area and, say, doing hydraulic fracture. And that was very important because there are some parts of the you know, country that either had never had the industry active or right. hadn't had it in a very long time. And so we created a standard specifically that lets the community know as we go through the different phases of the well development, what can you expect? What are your you know, what are your opportunities to participate in the process? And that standard, when we developed that standard, did have um, professional societies, did have NGOs, did have some government officials who participate in the process. So it's, um, you know, again, building a very rigorous, transparent and open process you know, gives those government regulators the opportunity to say, right, when we're developing something and we want to reference a standard for a best practice for industry, we know we can go to these API standards because they have this rigor, they have this openness, they have this transparency. And we know that, you know, our, our constituents can provide comments just like we can as well. So uh, those th that's how we draw that, that different community to help us write these standards. Interesting. So I have a question about the ballots that you said were are open to the public. How does the public find out that they're open? So they go to our website, uh, and when they go to the standards committees, where we have a, a, a link for all the different standards committees, at the bottom of that is a link that says open ballots. You click on that link, and all of the ballots that are open at any one given time are all shown there. And you can go scroll through there. You click on the link and it'll take you to the actual ballot document and provide you a form that you can provide your comments. Okay. It is, it is. Well, let me, I guess, um, kind of wrap up here a little bit. Um, I, the last question I would have is for folks that are already certified to Q2, mm -hmm. what's that process gonna look like for them moving into the new edition of the standard? Yeah, anytime that there's a there's a new addition of any of our standards, especially those that are covered by our you know our licensing programs, our quality management systems, or sa other safety programs, is there's always a transition period. So when we developed this one, this second edition was published in July of, of 2021. Uh, its effective date isn't until January of 2022. So you automatically have a, a six month period of time to sort of prepare for all the changes. Uh, when we have a standard that has a, a very significant set of changes, you know, say we're doing a complete rewrite, uh, we oftentimes will give upwards of a year for organizations to prepare to make that transition. Uh, but working with our with our monogram and, and uh, quality registrar staff, uh, the folks that administer the QM, QMS standards, uh, we made sure that they were involved in all the different stages of development, comment resolution, the balloting cycle, et cetera. And then work with them specifically to make sure that their documentation was aligned with the new requirements 
and that they had all the information they needed to reach out to our current active certified organizations. We currently have 173, you know, active QC certified organizations around the world. Uh, we have 43 organizations that are in the application process. So that shows you there is an interest that's an uptick in this area. Uh, and it, it really is a, it really is a, a, a global standard. We have certified locations in 35 different countries where organizations have self-certified and said, right, I want to make sure that, that I can differentiate myself. I want to make sure that I can show the clients that want to use me or currently use me that I'm a qualified, certified organization through the API QMS program. So anyway, to, to your question, we do give plenty of time for that transition. Uh, there's plenty of outreach, of course, to all the certified organizations saying, hey, you know, when you uh, undergo your next, you know, assessment or audit, you will be, you know, audited against this next standard. Uh, gotcha. The effective date, again, is January of 2022. That means all of the current applicants have to be operating against the new standard by that date. Uh, but they could have, um, you know, made that change over sooner if, if that made sense for them, depending on where they were in their review cycle. Uh, sure. So the effective date was July of 2021, but the absolute date that they all have to be transitioned over to the new edition is January of 2022. Well, you know, I actually have one more question from something you just said that uh, okay. I find interesting. So you said that you've got 42 um, in progress right now, which is, is a lot considering there's only a 173 to uh, Q2 currently certified. Uh, 40, so 43, you, but, I'm 43, but you just yes. one. Okay. So Don't what do you... What do you attribute this uh, this increase to? You know, why do you see? Why do you think, or just feel that so many more folks are uh, gaining interest in this? I think there's a, a, a greater focus right now on on safety and sustainability just across the industry. I, I think you hear that from from everyone, and so one of the things that we've done is we've really focused on that as we've developed all these new additions. And, and so, for example, part of what we're doing now is when we update these standards, we look at how they can be relative to the United Nations Safety and Sustain I'm sorry, Sustainability Development Goals, the SDGs. Gotcha. And so we look at that and say, well, well, how does this support that? And so this standard in particular, if you look at the Sustainability Development Goal 4 on inclusive and equitable quality education and training, well, we now have a new section on training explaining to organizations you know, these are the things that you need to do to make sure that you're sending out a qualified and trained workforce because we know they're going to work safer if they're, if they're skilled. Um, yep. You know, sustainability goal nine, which is build resilient infrastructure. Again, a lot of the service and supply individuals and organizations are maybe welders or things of that nature. Well, that supports infrastructure. And again, that supports safety and sustainability. So I think tying, you know, what we do with the standards and how they support those kinds of societal goals, which, of course, you know, we all want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, so to speak, right. uh, I think sort of provides that backing that people say, well, maybe I wasn't sure I wanted to be involved in this program now, but now I can see how it's going to benefit me not only today when I'm responding to, say, a, a, you know, an RFP from somebody, but in the future, because right. my organization will be around for years to come, because I can operate more safely and sustainable, I think that probably drives, you know, some of those new applicants. I, I think that is a fantastic spot to uh, end on here. I, I really, really appreciate uh, appreciate your time and uh, your input here. This, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. It's good talking to both of you. And uh, the next time I'm, I guess, I'm assuming you're down in the Houston area. We are. Yeah, next time I'm down there, I'll have to I'll have to swing by and admire all those Absolutely. things you got behind you, like that great. <laughs>
appreciate it. You have a great day. Thank you. You too, and happy Thanksgiving. Hey, this is Kyle with Texas Quality Assurance. Thank you again so much for checking out the Quality Matters podcast. We absolutely love putting this out and love the feedback we get from you guys. So please take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or drop us a line on LinkedIn. We absolutely love hearing from you every chance we get.